comes a time of church that we get to give to the Lord. There's various ways we can give. But first, uh, my name is Jonathan. This is my lovely sous chef. Her Emily. name is Emily. Okay, so the ways we can give is this. We can go to uh, the website at newopilo.org. We could use the NHC app or we could text it to NHC Give. And here's the number 188-364-GIVE. If you're like me, you can snail mail the bug up to New Hope Church, 840 Kupala Road, Hilo, Hawaii, 96720. So, this evening, Emily and I, we will be baking my favorite coffee cake. I love coffee and I love cake, so I figure we make coffee cake. So, where's the recipe, Emily? Here is the recipe. Always follow the instructions of the recipe. First thing we need is eggs. Okay, add two eggs. Okay, next thing we need is flour. We need to add flour. Here's flour, freshly picked flour. And the last ingredient is coffee. Okay, put some coffee in there. Alright. Mix it up, mix it up, mix it up. Okay, so the next step in this baking of the coffee cake is we're going to put this in the oven. Okay. Then we're going to set it to 350 degrees Fahrenheit for 45 minutes or you could leave it in at 1 degree Fahrenheit for 45 days. Okay, it looks like time is up. Let's go ahead and take out our coffee cake and see how it looks. Alright, oh, be careful. Always use like towel because the oven is hot yeah okay here we go wow look at this coffee cake yeah wow oh, look at that awesome no all right that was fun but you know all kidding aside uh, giving if we follow the directions just like how I followed the directions of the recipe for my coffee cake if we follow the directions in giving uh, God can create something beautiful and use it for His glory. Now, the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, is known as the basic instructions before leaving earth. So in the area of giving, when we give, from what I've read and studied, if we give with two instructions, two directions before giving, which is number one, have a cheerful heart when we give. And number two, if we give sacrificially, then God can create a beautiful thing and use it for His glory. And by, by what I mean by that is spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the entire world. So let us pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we get to give with a cheerful heart and sacrificially. Lord, we ask that you would take this offering, use it, and transform it to bring many, many people into your kingdom. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight, Pastor Marsha will be speaking on Zephaniah. So let us open up our hearts and our ears and focus on what God has to say. Bye. The book of the prophet Zephaniah. 
Zephaniah lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. It was when King Josiah had attempted to bring about real change in the land by removing idols and restoring the temple to the worship of Israel's God alone. But Israel was just too far gone. Worshiping other gods was too entrenched in the life of the people. And it ended up that Josiah's pride led him to a tragic death on the battlefield as he set Jerusalem on a collision course with Babylon. And Zephaniah, he had seen all of this coming. For years, he had been warning the leaders of Jerusalem. And this little book is a collection of his poetry summarizing his message. It's designed to have three main parts. The first focuses on the day of the Lord's judgment coming on Judah and Jerusalem. The second part is about the day of the Lord's judgment on the nations and Jerusalem again. And then the third section explores the hope that remains for the nations and for Jerusalem on the other side of God's judgment. The first section opens with the shocking reversal of Genesis 1. So God's good, ordered world is going to descend back into disorder and darkness and chaos, becoming uninhabitable once again. And as you keep reading, you realize Zephaniah is developing all of these powerful poetic images to describe how Jerusalem's world is going to end. All of the city's institutions for worshiping the gods of the Canaanites will be destroyed. All the leaders who perpetrated injustice, all the economic centers where crooked lending and borrowing took place, all of it will be gone along with the city's walls. Zephaniah develops these almost apocalyptic images to show the significance of what's going to happen. It all refers to a great army that is coming to take out Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that Zephaniah never mentions whose army God's going to use to bring this judgment. Now we know from the other prophets, Micah or Habakkuk, that it's Babylon. But Zephaniah never mentions that. And it's because he wants to highlight God's role in orchestrating the rise and fall of the city. And actually that's what gives Zephaniah hope. Not that Jerusalem as a whole can avoid its fate, but in the closing poem of section 1, he calls on anyone in Jerusalem who would seek the Lord. And he says these will make up the faithful remnant, the people who could be spared if they repent. In the second section, Zephaniah widens his focus to include the nations around Judah. So the Philistines or Moabites, the Ammonites, even the Assyrians. He accuses all of them of corruption and violence and arrogance. And he predicts that all of them will fall before Babylon too. And what's shocking is that the final people group targeted in this section are the Israelites in Jerusalem. It's like the leaders and prophets and priests of Israel are so corrupt and violent, so estranged from their God, that he doesn't even recognize them as his people anymore. And so this section ends with God's final decision. He says he's going to gather up all the nations, including Jerusalem, and pour out his burning indignation. God's justice becomes this consuming fire that devours evil from the land, which is really intense. And so the following line that brings us into the final part of the book comes as a total surprise. We discover that this burning fire of divine judgment is not aimed at destroying people. Rather, its purpose is to purify the nations, including Jerusalem. So the section begins as God says that he's going to heal and transform the rebellious nations into one unified family. And that after being purified, they're going to turn from their evil and call upon the name of the Lord. These images point to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that God would find a way to bless the nations and Jerusalem as well. 
The conclusion of the book focuses on the restoration of the city at the center of the nations. God's presence is there in the restored city, along with that faithful remnant that's been humbled and transformed by God's mercy. And they're called to sing and rejoice. And then in this striking image, we're told that God is a poet who wants to sing too. Your God will live among you, and he will celebrate you with songs of joy, Zephaniah says. The closing poem of the book ends with these very powerful images about God gathering up into his his family, the outcast and the poor and the broken, where he exalts them into a place of honor. And that's how the book ends. This little book of Zephaniah, it contains some of the most intense images of God's justice and love that you find anywhere in the prophets. His justice is about his passion to protect and rescue his world from the horror of human evil and violence. God won't tolerate the horrible things that humans do to each other and to his world. But he brings his justice in order to restore, in order to create a world where people can flourish in safety and peace because of his love. And so Zephaniah forces us to hold together these two aspects of God's character, his justice and his love. And he wants us to discover that together they contain the future hope of our world. And that's what the book of Zephaniah is all about. You were just said, like, I got to do this. Like, it could be your, if you're a child, is your parents saying, no, don't do it. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend. It could be any number of people who are saying, it's not a good idea. Don't do it. But you want to do it so bad, and you keep insisting, and you keep bugging, and you keep trying. And finally, they just give in and let you do it, and then you suffer the consequences of your own actions. Well, I do that a lot of times. But let me tell you about one. And, and I've told this story before, so you may have heard it. But when we first bought our house, it was a fixer-upper. And we knew that there would be things we have to do to get it up to speed and, you know, improved a little bit and all that. But it was okay because it was going to be our house and we could do what we want. Well, when we moved in, there was weeds growing um, out of the rock wall, like out of the rocks in the rock wall. And so my husband said that he would poison them. And I said, hey, wait, wait. If you poison them, they're going to turn brown. They're going to look really ugly, so can I burn them? And he says, nope, you can't do it. I said, no, come on. Give me a chance. Just let me burn the weeds. I've seen people do it. They have that thing, and they, they burn, set it on fire, and they just shh, and it's gone, and the weeds just melt. Let me do it. And he kept saying no, and I kept bugging him. And he said no, and I'd bug him. And finally, he gave in. He gave in. He says, fine, whatever. But then he sent Micah, our grandson who lives with us, out to help me. And I think actually it was to make sure I didn't burn anything down. So the big day comes, and I'm out there, and I've got this, this torch thing, and Tom starts it up, and I'm over there, and I'm burning all the weeds on the wall, and I'm having a blast because all the weeds go, and they kind of melt. They're kind of, you know, doing what weeds do. But I got to this one, and no matter how much I had the fire on it, it wasn't going anywhere. It just kept being there. And the, the more I tried to burn it and make it go away, the more it was there. And I was getting frustrated. And anybody who knows me knows that I got to win. And so this weed was not going to win. So I'm standing there and I've got the torch and I'm like burning it. And I'm insistent on it burning and I'm watching it not burn. Well, what I didn't realize was behind the wall, that thing had this massive root system or whatever that it made it pretty resistant to what was happening. And I'm burning it. All of a sudden, I hear Micah go, uh-oh, and I hear whoosh. And I look up, and there's this wall of orange behind our fence. 
and Micah runs, and he grabs the hose, and he's shooting out the thing, and nothing burned, warped the wood a little, but no big damage. But here's the thing. My husband knows me so well that he knew that this was a horrible idea. But I kept bugging him and bugging him and bugging him until I got what I wanted. And he allowed me to walk through my consequences. And you know, I think that by the time Zephaniah began writing his warning, God was at the same place with the Israelites. They have strayed so far from him in their pursuit of foreign gods, power, and economic um, 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 things that they began to look like the nations around them. And sadly, as we continue to read in Zephaniah, his warning becomes clear that not only have the people strayed far from God's ways and far from what God wanted, but they'd begun to conform and they started to look like the nations around them. Sadly, that wasn't God's plan for Israel. See, God's plan was that through Israel, all the nations would know that he is the God over every other God. In the Old Testament book, Ezekiel, God said this, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I give to my servant Jacob. Now this concept is repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. Over and over, as you read, you'll see these types of words. And they will know that I am the Lord. I will make my name known. And as I read the Old Testament, I see that over and over. And I started seeing it so much that I grabbed a pen. And every time I saw those words or something like it, I began to circle it. And I began to circle it. And I began to circle it. And I want to suggest to you that you start doing the same thing. As you're reading through the Old Testament, circle every time you see where God says something along the lines of, I will make my name known. Because when you do, what you'll notice is that throughout the entire Old Testament, God's heart is that through his people, that the nations around would know him. Now, from the moment that God called Abraham, this is what God's plan was, and that's what his intent was. And it's precisely what he said. He said, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. But instead of standing out and being a blessing to the nations, Israel had begun to conform, and they began to look like the nations around them. And so we find in Zephaniah that God has reached the point where he's going to bring judgment on Israel, or as Zephaniah says, he's going to bring the day of the Lord. Now, as an aside, whenever you see the term, the day of the Lord, that also has some meanings and things for the future, for later. So whenever you see that, just pay attention to it and see what it says. Now, through the first two chapters of Zephaniah, he describes some pretty intense judgment. However, the discipline of God was never about punishment. 
it was always about purity. See, God wants to purify his people. Bible study teacher and author Beth Moore says it this way. God's patience sets limits. Thankfully, so does his discipline. King David said it this way. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And though he was going to pour out his wrath, it wouldn't last forever. And on the other side of God's judgment and his wrath is mercy. It's a hope and a future. And in that future, God was going to bless, restore, and rebuild his people. Zephaniah, by the third chapter, says this, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord, and serve him shoulder to shoulder. See, God rescues us because he loves us. And he rescues us because we need rescuing. And as we've been going through the various prophets um, throughout these past few weeks and listening to the messages, I discovered a pretty common pattern. See, first, the Israelites would move far from God, and they'd move so far away that they need rescuing. And then God would send a prophet to warn them of what lies ahead. And then he would let them know that they're compromising and that he's conforming to the world around them and that he's not pleased. And yet, there is hope. There is always hope. And if they would turn back from what they were doing and turn back to God, he would relent. So as I read Zephaniah, I read it as a warning to me and to all of us. And while the first two chapters speak of doom and chastisement, the final chapter speaks of restoration. So I want to take advantage of that warning. And I want to learn... Um, from the Israelites, how to lean into God's restoration. And if we do that, Zephaniah's words become an opportunity, opportunity to do a checkup on our relationship with God. And through Zephaniah's warnings, even though they are for the nation of Israel, and this was a national issue, it was first a heart issue. And it began with people. See, as individuals began to compromise, as they began to seek power and position and money, as they began to stray from God, it would bleed out from one person to the next person to the next person and to the next person until the whole nation no longer looked like the people of God. They no longer looked like a people who would be someone that the nations could look at and recognize that there is a God in heaven who loves them. They weren't different. They had conformed. They were not who God called them to be. So I want to learn from their mistakes. And as I do this, I know one thing. I am only responsible for me. I am not responsible for the next person or the next person. But that's the best place to begin. So tonight, instead of focusing on God's wrath, I want to allow his word to purify us, to purify our hearts, and to purify our motives. And as we begin to ask him to purify us, I'm going to actually start reading from Zephaniah. And as we read Zephaniah and the other Old Testament prophets, we have a choice. 
See, we can read them as history. We can read them as something God spoke to the Israelites a very long time ago. Or we can ask the Holy Spirit to bring it alive in us, to inspire us as we read, in the same way that he inspired the prophets as they wrote. And as these words come alive, we can ask him to bring about the correction and redirection that he wants in us. So before we go any further, let's invite the Holy Spirit to bring God's word alive in our hearts and teach us how to apply it in our lives. And as we do, if you have your Bible, I want you to get it ready and open it up to Zephaniah chapter 1, because that's where we're going to start. But wherever you are, let's bow your heads and let's pray. Holy Spirit, you inspired the writings of these words that make up our Bible. And as we read them and learn from them, would you, by your power, inspire us to hear, to learn, and to apply. And Holy Spirit, please bring these words of this Bible alive in our hearts and in our souls. Amen. So let's start. I'm going to start reading from Zephaniah, and actually just a couple chapters. I'm going to start reading from chap chapter 1, verse 8. And this is what God says. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. So what he's saying is, I'm going to start um, bringing judgment on your political system. And then he says, On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temples of their gods with violence and deceit. So he says, I'm going to judge and chastise you on your religious system. And then he says, On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. So he says, I'm going to judge your economic system. Now that could be written for today, couldn't it? According to Zephaniah, God has reached his limit and his patience, and he's going to execute judgment on them for their political system, their religious system, and their economic system. And by looking at these three areas in our own lives, we will be able to check our hearts and our spirits and allow God to purify us before he has to discipline us. So this week, I'm going to actually ask you to take some time and sit before the Lord. And I'm going to give you three questions based on these three areas that um, God judged. And I want you to ask God to purify you and make you right with him. So the first area we'll look at is the political system. And I want to make that personal to you. So the first question is to ask yourself is, how are you handling politics? How are you handling them? See, Election Day is going to come and go this year just like it always does. And here's one thing that I'm certain of. The platform of any particular party is not going to be what saves us. The person who gets to sit in the Oval Office is not going to be what saves us. Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne in heaven, and his kingdom will have no end. And that's where we need to put our hope. See, it always has been, and it always will be Jesus Christ. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who is sovereign over all kings. Even the Persian king Darius, who was not a follower of God, recognized God's sovereignty, and he issued this decree. 
He said, in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and in the earth. This was said by a Persian king who did not follow the God of all gods. Isaiah wrote this, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this God is sovereign he is the hope of the world not a person not a political party and as we get deeper into our political season and closer to the election, is your Christianity informing your politics? Or are your politics shaping your Christianity? Are you able to maintain a healthy relationship with people who think differently than you? Sit before the Lord. Search your heart. Ask yourself these questions. Where is your hope? Is it on Christ? Or is it on who's in the Oval Office next? The next area I want to look at is the religious system. And I want to bring that home. So let me ask you, how is your relationship with God? See, over and over, you'll hear me and you'll hear other people say that this is not about religion, it's about relationship. Religion can be described as trying to get to God through rules and doing all the right things. It's based on our efforts to reach God and be made right with him based on our own efforts. But God's plan is for us to have a restored personal relationship with him. And throughout the pages of the entire Bible, we see evidence of his love and his constant pursuit of us. We see evidence of his love and his um, constant chasing after us and making us right, culminating in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf to make us right with him. So now when we read our Bibles, and we listen to sermons, or we read books, or do things, we don't do them because we have to, or I need to make so many points so that God will accept me. We do it because we're being changed from the inside out, and we want to do these things. See, God doesn't look for right behavior. He's looking for submitted hearts. Through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. See, God doesn't want us to go through religious actions to earn his favor. He already loves us. 
He's already seeking after us. He already wants a relationship with us. He's pursuing us. And he's pursuing us and rescuing us because we need to be rescued. So ask yourselves these questions. How's your heart? Is it completely yielded to God? How's your prayer life? Do you trust God enough that whatever his answer is, that you know it's the right one? Because God's not interested in our actions. He doesn't want a checklist. He wants our hearts. The third area that God judged, and I want to talk about, and ask this question, how are you stewarding, how are you stewarding God's finances? See, the word steward, it means to manage another's property or financial affairs. It's one who administers anything as the agent of another person or others. <clears throat> and in all honesty, this is probably the toughest question to ask and be honest about. Because, let's be honest, in this day and age, it's really hard to do anything without having money. At the same time, we don't like to admit that our money isn't ours. We want control. But everything that we have is given to us by God. Now, you may be thinking, what do you mean it's given by God? I work hard. I work 40 or more hours a week for everything that I have. Fair enough. But who do you think gave you the talent to do the things that you're doing? Who created you and equipped you to make that, to make that earnings? King David said it this way, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. See, God is the one who created all we see and all that we don't see. He established our world and he keeps it in place. He created you and me and every person that ever existed or every person that will ever exist. And essentially, everything that we have belongs to God, our creator. And we get to be stewards over his possessions. Jesus once told the story of a man going on a journey. Now, if you want to read the account, it's found in the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning at verse 14. But I'm just going to kind of just tell it to you. So this man, he's very rich, is going on a trip. And it's going to be a long trip, and he's going to go far. So he calls three of his workers to him. And he gives to each worker an amount of money to manage in his absence. And each worker received that amount of money in accordance with what they could do, what they were capable of doing. So the owner leaves on the journey, and he does what he needs to do. And then when he comes back, he calls the three men to him. Two of the men came back with a good report and a return on the money that they were entrusted with. But the third man chose to do nothing with it. He buried it until his boss came home, and then he was chastised for it. Now notice, he wasn't chastised for the amount. He was chastised for not being a wise steward of what he had been entrusted with. He didn't handle it well. So when it comes to our finances, 
The amount that we have is not what's important to God. What's important is how we steward what it is that he's entrusted us with. And he doesn't care whether it's much or little. How are you handling it? So how are you handling what God has entrusted to you? Are you completely trusting God with your finances, no matter how little or how much you have? And are you able to hold it loosely, knowing it's not yours anyways? It all belongs to God. Now, I know. I've given you some tough questions to ask yourself. But I'm convinced that if we take the time to honestly sit before the Lord and ask these questions and ask him purify our hearts make us right with you then maybe just maybe we can start to make a difference in our community in our state and in the world around us because maybe just maybe instead of looking like the world we'll stand out and I'm pretty sure we can all agree that the world we're living in right now needs help. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, who prophesied to Judah at the same time that Zephaniah's great-grandfather Hezekiah was king, wrote one of the most quoted promises in the Bible. And he said this, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land that promise starts with if if you and I just with ourselves begin to recognize where we're conforming and compromising if we confess it, if we repent of it, and repent means to turn away, to go away from, and we sit before God and we pray for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our nation, then it will bleed out to others until collectively we as a nation turn back to God but it starts with us. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And we can't do that if we conform. We're responsible to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek God's face, and repent. And that starts when we search our hearts and let them purify us. But it starts with our hearts. So I'm going to ask you to do that. This week, take some time. Sit before the Lord and ask yourself tough questions. And then make a commitment from that point on. We're not going to conform. We're going to be different. We're going to be stand out. And we're going to be His. So, so I, I have for you tonight. But I want to encourage you. Be in your Bible. Be reading. We're going to be starting a discipleship program. So find out about that. And let someone disciple you so that you can continue walking with God. And if you haven't already um, started a home group, 
then do that. Because home groups are a way where you can continue to um, grow and to fellowship. And we need that. We need that so that we don't get pulled and tugged and conform. Would you bow your heads wherever you are and let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. You've called us to look like you. Not like this world, but to look like you. So that's what our prayer is. That from this moment on, that we would be a people who would stand out, who would be different, who would be a blessing to the nations around us. But we know, Lord, that only starts when we can purify our hearts. So we invite you to do that. Have your way. And this week, as we sit before you, and we lay these areas before you, how we are with politics, how we are with a relationship with you, and how we handle your finances and how we steward what you've given us. Would you make the corrections that need to be made? And would you soften our hearts that we would follow and we would obey? We pray this all in the name of Jesus, who died for us and who loves us. Amen.